If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. I am so glad that you have joined us for a conversation with Rob Jackson, who is an internationally renowned leader in volunteer engagement. Rob has over 25 years of professional experience leading and managing volunteers. You might be saying, so what? There are thousands of people on the planet who can say the same thing. But Rob has risen to the level of trusted thought leader and influencer. He's co-authored three books on the subject. The most recent is called From the Top Down. And he's also co-authored the Complete Volunteer Management Handbook, as well as Turn Your Organization into a Volunteer Magnet. That one, by the way, is actually available for download from one of his more recent blog posts, and it's free. It's from 2007. It's now downloadable completely free. But do you know what I really admire about Rob's work? He's a little bit of a contrarian, kind of like me, and he refuses to just regurgitate what prior experts or associations have said is a best practice or a leading practice. If you spend just a few minutes at his blog, it is very clear that he contributes an important voice on things like accreditation for volunteer managers and paying out-of-pocket expenses for volunteers. So if you're curious to hear his voice on any of those subjects, please join me in welcoming Rob Jackson to the podcast. Hey, Rob, welcome. Thank you, Dolph. How are you today? Gosh, I am doing great. I know we had a little bit of technical difficulties and you kind of sounded like a Dalek on my end, but thankfully you don't, you don't anymore. <laughs> I was putting my weekend voice on for you. <laughs> <laughs> and so now that we all sound like humans, let's maybe jump into this conversation by you sharing how you got your career in volunteerism started. Okay, so I'll try and keep a very long story reasonably short. The first memory I have of being a volunteer was back at high school, back in the 80s in the days of the yuppies, when one of our teachers decided that he was going to translate his filofax concept into something that we could use as students. And I 
Didn't know it was called volunteering at the time, but I helped out with that. And I suppose that sowed a seed in the back of my head. And so I continued volunteering off and on as I got into university. And then I ended up doing a placement whilst I was at university, completely unrelated to my degree, where in essence, what it was was volunteer management. So like a lot of us, I fell into it completely by accident. I think the only person in the world who's ever said, mummy, daddy, I'd like to be a volunteer manager was my youngest son when he was about four years old. And I told him what I did for a living. And it kind of has gone very fortuitously from there, from one role to another role to another role in a variety of different organisations, including some time at Volunteering England. And then for the last nine years now as a consultant, trainer, speaker. I quite often describe myself as an itinerant opinion spouter for hire. That seems to be the way that my life is defined professionally these days. And I'll say it is quite itinerant. I know before we got on to this recording, we were talking a little bit about your travel schedule. So I know you're going to be presenting in D.C. You're based out of the U.K. You're going to be presenting in D.C. later this year. You're going to be presenting in Auckland and New Zealand even later in the year. So definitely quite the itinerant volunteer opinionator. Yes. Yeah. I kind of made a purposeful decision in 2013 that I wanted to do some of the overseas travel with work. And it's difficult because we're now in an age with technology like this where you don't necessarily need to travel to do that work. For me, volunteer management is the same the world over. The basics of volunteer management doesn't matter if you're in sport, arts and culture, social services, different countries. The difference is the cultural and societal context that goes around that. And you can take the same issue that somebody may be dealing with in London and you can view it in New York or you can view it in Auckland or you can view it in Melbourne. And there'll be subtle differences to it because of that context. And I can then take that idea back. It's almost like being a cross pollinator of ideas. So the overseas stuff is wonderful. And I'm really looking forward to being back at points of light this year and working in Minnesota again and in Australia and New Zealand and some of my favorite places in the world. So, yeah, it's going to be a good year this year, I think. Can you give an example of one of those issues that maybe you take in the UK and it's really different in New York and really different in Johannesburg? Yeah. So for me, one of the big differences, for example, between the States and the UK is that volunteering is far more kind of embedded in the fabric of society as I see it in the US. For me, that comes down to people had to help each other when people were moving west across the country as it was being colonised the first time. If you didn't help your neighbour, which is, after all, volunteering, even if we don't call it that, then not only did you die, but your community died as well. Whereas here in the UK, it's got that still very philanthropic, well-off, doing to the less well-off connotation. I mean, our first piece of charity law was over 500 years ago under Queen Elizabeth I. And then you add in the fact that we have a very strong public sector in this country, not only in the National Health Service, and a load of other things as well. And so since the Second World War, there's almost been a mindset, if a job's going to be done, it's going to be done by a professional, by which people mean a paid employee. That throws up this interesting cultural dynamic between volunteering in the two countries. So you would see people, and I can remember looking at the hotel room in Bloomington, Minnesota, at a fundraising rally with T-shirts that said volunteer, and they were in Costco, and it said volunteer. 
And I think the only time that's happened here was at the London 2012 Olympic Games. It's interesting, and I may have mentioned this maybe 30 or 40 episodes ago, in freshman English here in the U.S., we had to read essentially the journal of Alex de Tocqueville, who was this European fellow who traveled around the colonies pre-Revolutionary War, sometime mid-1700s. And one of the things he really noticed was, oh, these colonials have developed this interesting system of civic organizations that we don't have in continental Europe or in the United Kingdom at the time, England. Historically, I think I can absolutely see how that kind of came about because in the U.S., from our earliest foundings for survival, we had these civic organizations, whereas they were not necessarily native or indigenous to England. As the late great Susan J. Ellis used to say, Paul Revere was a fantastic volunteer. Nobody gets paid to start a revolution. So the distinction between our two nations came very much through the act of volunteering. And thank goodness it did. I love that. I am going to steal that line because that is such (laughs) a good line. Now, I do have to say, though, back when Paul Revere was a great volunteer, or when Alex de Tocqueville, a couple decades before that, was traveling around the colonies, for volunteer managers, there was no certification or accreditation. And it's funny, I think you and I might have really similar sentiments about this, although for me, it typically falls around certification for fundraising. Can we talk about certification or accreditation for volunteer engagement managers? Yes, of course we can. One of my favorite subjects. I will say that part of the reason why I am not the world's biggest fan of accreditation programs or certification programs for leaders of volunteers is, and I'll be completely honest in this, I've got 25, nearly 26 years experience in this, and I don't have accreditation in it. I don't even have a university degree. So my education, accredited education, is to high school equivalent in the US, really. And I don't think that makes me a worse manager of volunteers as a result. I can see why we have these accreditation programs. And I think particularly the CVA, there is a lot to be celebrated about that. It has helped a lot of leaders of volunteer engagement gain credibility internally within their organisations. It has helped them argue for greater salaries, greater influence. But my question always comes down to, what are we accrediting? Are we accrediting the things that make somebody a good leader, a manager of volunteers? Or are we accrediting the ability of people to follow the rules, to do the systems and the processes, which are important, but do not define what makes somebody a great leader of volunteers. And I ask the question occasionally in my workshops, and I have done it online before, please define for me what makes somebody a great leader of volunteers. And people struggle to answer that question. If we struggle to answer that question, how can we confidently codify something to give us an accreditation that says we are good at that role. Mm -hmm. It's almost like accreditation is the intro training program. And then the final exam you take is kind of like the final exam you take in high school or college. Like, okay, you learned what you were supposed to learn. Yes, absolutely. Any accreditation program, whether it's for an accountant or a lawyer or anything like that, there's always continuing professional development that needs to go on beyond that. I look at so much of what has come to define volunteer engagement and volunteer management today. And it is, uh, Andy Fryer in Australia talks about this, how we originally started in the late 60s with people like Harriet Naylor, and we were very much a people profession. And then we moved to the, what Andy talks about as a paper profession. So 
if you go to a conference of volunteer managers and they introduce themselves to each other, it will be, hi, my name is Rob. The first question you will probably ask me is how many volunteers have I got? As if that's the ultimate badge of success that I've got more than you. And then our default conversations will be about risk assessment, health and safety, criminal record checks, application forms, how long is yours, reference checks. We will only ever get to talking about our volunteers as people, as in saying, Dolph, I've got some problem volunteers. Would you like some of my problem volunteers? For me, that's kind of a wrong-headed way of thinking about it. Those systems and processes are important, but they've come to dominate rather than support. And my clearest example of that was in Australia a couple of years ago, where a lady who worked, she was about the only employee for a very small organisation. She said to me, Rob, should we have exit interviews and questionnaires for our volunteers? And I said, yeah, probably. It's not a bad idea to have them. Wouldn't it be much better if you invested your effort in getting to know your volunteers well enough that you knew when they were thinking about leaving before they left? Yeah. And so if an accreditation programme we tick the boxes because we can do exit interviews and we can do exit questionnaires. That's great. But if it takes our eye away from getting to know our volunteers well enough to know when their motivations are shifting and changing and their interests and their passions are changing, then that's not necessarily a helpful thing. So if it gives you what you need internally, if it gives you what you need, then go for it. But we have to be very cautious about accreditation being the definition of what makes somebody a good leader and manager of volunteers. I have a similar perspective on accreditation. And admittedly, I don't have a lot of volunteer management experience except board members. I've done a lot of board management. But for volunteer like program operation management volunteers, I don't have a lot of experience in that. What I have in earlier in my career had a good bit, about a dozen years of experience in is fundraising. And toward the end, I used to really chuckle. Early in my career, I, I was never accredited. I still have no fundraising accreditation. I remember I ended up having a conversation with the last executive director where I was her development director. And after I'd been there a couple of years, she said to me, have you thought about becoming a CFRE? And I literally said to her, at this point in my career, I've raised about $20 million. And I kind of feel like that's my accreditation. And she pushed it a little bit. She essentially said to me, well, I feel like if you are accredited, donors might feel differently, return your calls more, whatever. And first of all, I think that's total bogus. Total bonus. Let me tell you, I don't think any donor cares whether or not I'm a CFRE. The same way I don't think any volunteer cares whether or not you're a certified or accredited volunteer manager. But what I actually ended up saying to her is, okay, well, let's look at how many hours that's going to take. And then let's figure out how much less money I'm going to be able to raise this year. And if you decide that it's worth that opportunity cost or how much less I'm going to be able to raise, okay, I'll go do it. And so when we crunch the numbers, she's like, yeah, that's not worth it. <laughs> and I imagine it's probably the same kind of thing with volunteer managers. If you are good at doing it, your accreditation is that you have happy, long-tenured volunteers or you've developed really great short-term programs for volunteers and you have really good outcome measures on your short-term programs. And I think the other reason why volunteer managers, I mean, I spent six years working in volunteer management in fundraising. So interesting having both feet in two separate camps. I think the other reason why volunteer managers, it's perfectly justifiable reason want to pursue accreditation is it's this sense of wanting to be seen to be part of a profession. Volunteer management still around the world isn't seen as a as a serious profession within the nonprofit space. It isn't seen as a serious discipline. 
And and I think that's a very worthy aspiration. And I've viewed for almost as long as I've been working in this field that we should be more professional and that we should be seen as a profession. But I've also argued that we have to be careful about what we mean when we talk about being a profession, because there are lots of professions that have a high level of accreditation. So people like accountants and lawyers who don't necessarily have the greatest reputation in the public eye. And you look at fundraising, there are loads of brilliant fundraisers around the world. But as fundraising has become more professional, certainly here in the UK, so have grown tabloid newspaper interest in it and controversy about fundraising practice. And do we necessarily want to be attracting that kind of spotlight? So it's almost a case of be careful what you wish for. So long as there is a variety of ways in which people's professional experience and competence can be recognised and that we can build a field around that, a profession around that, then that's fine. But I just think we have to be careful that our accreditation models don't necessarily always deliver what we want them to deliver. Right. I think there's some other ways that you're really on the cutting edge of volunteer management. As I said, I spent some time on your blog and I loved one of your more recent blog posts where you kind of talk about 10 easy things to do. At least it's not the title, but something like 10 things you can do that will really help supersize your volunteer program. And one of those is to help volunteers with out-of-pocket expenses. And you had a unique approach to it that I'd not thought about before, which is that DEI approach. Can you say a few words about that? Yeah, so this is a blog post that actually went up today, the day that we're recording this. And it is something that I see a difference in around the world. And actually, if you go back onto my old blog site, there's a really interesting post on this same issue from a lady who used to manage a volunteer centre here in the UK, who now manages a volunteer centre in Adelaide, Australia, who has a very different perspective on it because of the two different countries. But in the UK for a long time, the reimbursement of -of out-of-pocket expenses, which is governed as to what you can allow by the tax authorities over here, but it has been seen as not just a financial issue, but a diversity, equality and inclusion issue in that if you do not offer the reimbursement of those expenses, the message that you are putting out is we are only accepting volunteers who can afford to be out of pocket by volunteering here. And so actually the provision of those expenses is an important way of recognising that anybody who comes to us, if they have those legitimate expenses reimbursed, doesn't have to be financially penalised through volunteering. Now that's easy to say. The difficult thing is getting the budget. And this, for me, there's two issues around this. One is whether or not organisations immediately look to outside funding to do that. And if they do, I can understand why they do, but that speaks volumes about their attitude to volunteering because they're only prepared to fund it externally. And so what I always encourage volunteer managers that I'm working with to do is to just put in that budget request. Put in that request every year for what you think is an appropriate budget level. And when it gets knocked back, put it in again the next year. And when it gets knocked back and talk about it as a diversity, equality and inclusion. And then the final thing that I would say on it is even when you've got that money in place and you're reimbursing those expenses, you need to guard against this culture of people not claiming because it creates a two tier system where some volunteers don't claim and some volunteers do claim and the ones that don't claim can end up looking down on the ones that do claim or putting in place cultural barriers that turn people off volunteering and my solution to that is you have a policy where 
everybody claims. And then those that don't want those expenses can donate them back to the organisation. And there is a neat little trick here in the UK called gift aid, where if you're a taxpayer, you can make that donation and the government will add, I think it's 25% back on top of it, equivalent to the income tax you would have paid. And Her Majesty's Treasury are absolutely fine with that. They're cool with it. I wish we could get the IRS to do that piece. That's awesome. I'll share with you, you just presented a really radical idea that I've not really thought about before, which is most organizations that I know in the United States that are willing to pay out-of-pocket expenses, whether it's cost of subway or mileage or whatever it might be, will typically do it on a, well, if you ask, we'll provide it to you. But I love how you're turning that around because if it's for everybody, then no one has to ask. Because when you ask, you're kind of identifying yourself as someone who does not have as much money. And not only that, it's almost like you're asking for charity. Well, I can come, but can you give me a subway token? Especially if you're in a more rural area where somebody has to drive to get there and they can't afford a distance you guys will drive in the US to go and do something is much further than what we would see as an acceptable distance to drive in the UK. So if you're talking a 30-minute, 45-minute drive each way to do volunteering and the gas cost that comes with that, and you're not reimbursing mileage at whatever IRS mileage rates are, then that's a lot of money that somebody's out of pocket if they're volunteering once or twice a week. And so you're saying only those people can be volunteers. And then we complain that we don't have diversity in our volunteer corps and that people don't see us as being passionate about equality and inclusion. Obviously, the things I immediately think about are mileage or subway. What are some of the other out-of-pocket expenses? Because honestly, I'm blanking on them, but you're the pro. So I know you're going to think about a couple more. So in the UK, one thing that employees can't claim cost of their mileage to and from their place of work, but volunteers can. There's an issue that needs to be looked at there. There is the cost of maybe protective clothing if they're required to buy their own protective clothing or they're required to buy their own uniform as a consequence of volunteering. There's potentially childcare as well. So what are we doing about childcare costs? Okay, now that's absolutely DEI. Oh my gosh, I love where you're going with this, Rob. Yeah. Do we have a creche childcare facility on site in our organization? that volunteers can access for free or are we requiring because we're saying no kids on site are we therefore saying okay that then means any parents with kids below that age or are we thinking of it maybe less as an expenses issue but potentially as a family volunteering issue is this something where the parents and the kids can come and volunteer together for example so things like use of a mobile phone so if the volunteer is working remotely and needs to be checking in at the start and end of a shift for the organization to make sure that they know there's a health and safety issue there, or they're volunteering from home and they're having to use proportion of their internet connection, then are those legitimate expenses? Are those expenses that, that you would cover? And I'm sure, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but I'm sure the IRS has guidelines on what's allowed because above that level, there may be tax implications, but it's just thinking through If I were doing this, what would be the cost that I would be uncomfortable with because I would be incurring? And are those things that we can legitimately look to cover? And if not, if they're going to act as a barrier as to who could be that volunteer, what could we do to ameliorate the financial effects of that in order to help that person be a volunteer? 
Man, I love that. I think that that is so awesome. One of the other things I'm hoping we were going to be able to talk about is you've also written a good little bit and spoken a little bit about the ways that volunteerism is changing and the nature of volunteerism is changing. And so, for example, specifically the long-term volunteers, like we always read in the newspaper about the volunteers that are around for 25 years. They retire at 55 and they do it until they're 80 years old. I know you've talked about the changing nature where we're seeing more and more short-term volunteers. Can you say a few words about that? I think the important thing to remember is that volunteers are people just like everybody else, and therefore they experience the same pressures on their lives, the same issues that the rest of us face. And I would think it's a pretty safe bet that the vast majority of people who are listening to us on this podcast are unlikely to thrill to the idea of having to give two days a week for the next 20 years of their life as a commitment to volunteer on day one. I mean, I'm using a shorthand, but that's how historically we've approached volunteering is that it's a regular commitment over a long time period. Our lives just don't fit that anymore. They're much more complex. We feel time pressure much more. I always joke that volunteer managers will be the first people to colonize Mars because the Martian day is a half hour longer than the Earth day. And golly, could we use that extra half day? So the way that we live our lives is much more complex. You know, all of the technology that's allowing us to record and listen to this was supposed to save us time. And all the studies show people feel more time pressured as a result. So volunteering has to adapt accordingly. And that's true of all generations. So the idea that we're going to have millions more baby boomers who are going to behave exactly the way that their parents' generation did when it comes to retirement is a complete nonsense because they've got caring responsibilities for their parents and for their children and quite often for their grandchildren. And they've got much higher expectations of how they're going to travel and do all of these kinds of things. And they're maybe not going to live in the community that they always lived in when they retire. They're going to move somewhere else. And so the way that they're going to volunteer and the shape of volunteering is going to be very different. And I think for me, that can manifest itself quite clearly when we talk about retention, that we still in the nonprofit sector talk about volunteer retention as how do I hang on to you as a volunteer for as long as possible? And I think increasingly the way that we keep people is by being flexible enough to let them go. That if you say to me, Rob, I can't volunteer with you anymore. I need to be able to go and travel the country and do this piece of work for the next six, seven weeks. And I go, I'm sorry, Dolph, you can't leave. The organization will fall apart without me. You're going to go and do it. You're never going to come back. But if I go, yeah, no problem. Whilst probably still silently going, oh my God, how am I going to fill those shifts Dolph was signed up to do? You're going to leave much happier. And in six to seven weeks when you come back, you're going to be much more open to me getting in touch with you and saying, Dolph, we think you're probably back by now. Would you like to volunteer again? Well, yeah, because you let me leave last time. So you'll let me leave next time. It's a very different mindset from how we have traditionally thought about volunteer engagement. And especially in this day and age where most of us have cycles in our work. And so many of us have 8, 10, 12 weeks a year where it's just horrible. And we can't take a, a long-term volunteer engagement if we know that we're going to have to be out eight weeks every year. Yeah. There's a guy I know over here who used to define it. He wanted in his organization, he's wanted his volunteering to be called martini volunteering, 
because there was a great ad campaign in the 1980s for Martini, which was Martini, anytime, anyplace, anywhere. His aspiration was that volunteering for his organisation, if somebody volunteers, they should be able to do that role anytime, anyplace, anywhere. I love that. Cannot say I love the idea of Martini, anytime, anyplace, <laughs> anywhere, but I love that as a motto for volunteerism. Yeah, it's great. It's fantastic. The only thing I will caution people to do is not go and look the ad campaign up on YouTube because being a 1980s ad campaign, it's not very Me Too friendly. Well, you know, and it's funny when you talked about that ad campaign, what I really thought was the tagline today would be, do you miss the 1950s? Martini, <laughs> anytime, anyplace, anywhere. It's really what I thought, because that sounds very madman 1950s to me. Yeah, exactly. Talking about volunteering and fundraising, one thing I've always been very impressed in my career that fundraisers do is they segment the audience down. And I don't think we do that enough in volunteer management. I think we still think so long as you've got a pulse and you're breathing, you're a potential volunteer rather than a five-year-old, a 15-year-old, a 25-year-old, a 55-year-old, a 95-year-old is going to think about volunteering differently. It's interesting because like fundraisers segment audiences in so many ways, and you could do that not just age or not just retired, not retired. There's so many ways you could segment volunteers to better utilize and engage your volunteers. Oh my gosh, another really groundbreaking idea. I love that. For me, I think the big thing is to think about life stages. I've got a, a son at the moment who's 18. He's finishing high school this year. He's looking towards university. So a couple of years ago, he started looking at volunteering as a way to help him on his career path. In 10 years time, he'll probably be busy working. He might not have as much time to volunteer when he's maybe got a young family. He'll get drawn back into volunteering through sports groups and social clubs. And so we think about life stages, because if you think about that, I'm 46 almost. So I'm of an age when I would be expected to step up because I've got young kids and they would want to go and do Boy Scouts and Girl Guides and all these kinds of things. Except increasingly, people don't have, and I don't have young kids, my kids are mainly grown up, but increasingly people have got young kids of that age now when they're in their 50s and 60s. I mean, Rod Stewart's got a child under the age of five, and he's about 153. <laughs> so the target market for those organizations is shifting. So your Boy Scouts and Girl Guides group probably doesn't need somebody or doesn't want somebody in their 30s or 40s anymore. Their target market now is people in their 50s and 60s. I assume, much like in fundraising, the dink is always everybody wants the dink when you're a fundraiser, double income, no kids, because they have disposable income. Again, this is a fundraising perspective. And also typically they have no one else other than their life partner that they're going to leave their estate to. So uh, every fundraiser salivates about that. But I imagine things like if you're a dink, you probably get segmented differently for volunteer engagement too, because you're not going to have childcare responsibilities. Maybe you are good for that long-term engagement or for board service or something like that. It comes up particularly in something like family volunteering. So there's a piece of work being done at the moment in the UK on family volunteering, and their initial findings have shown that 50% of family volunteers are older couples with no children volunteering together, which would fall in potentially into that dink market. But the moment we start talking about family volunteering, we think about five-year-olds running around our organisations doing things they probably shouldn't. And it's about how we get our perspective on these things and just opening, broadening up to the fact that the world today in 2020 is very different from how it was 30 or 40 years ago when most of the good practice on volunteer engagement was originally established. 
Rob, as we start to wrap up the meat of our conversation, I want to jump off the map to our off the map question. I often just let the muse bring me a question and the muse brought me a question. We were doing the sound check. I asked you to just say something for about 30, 45 seconds. You started to share with me that there are some really famous doodles in your child's school. So can you please talk about these doodles? Okay. So I live in a town called Grantham in Lincolnshire. So for anybody that's ever been to the UK, Grantham is about halfway between London and the city of York. It's one of those towns that you've probably been through or been past, but never come to. And we have a school, a boys' school in town called the King's School, which was refounded, not originally founded, refounded in 1500 and something. And the original school building is now a hall on a much bigger campus. And when you go out to the original space, it's very much like a kind of Harry Potter kind of environment. You walk into the hall and over in one corner, there is a a stone windowsill inside that has a piece of clear perspex over it. When you look under that piece of clear perspex, there is a piece of graffiti where Sir Isaac Newton, who was a student at that school, carved his name in the stone because he was born six miles from where I am sat now in a village called Colstoworth, where the apple tree from which the apple fell and he observed and conceptualised the idea of gravity is still there. And in fact, our astronaut Tim Peake a couple of years ago took some of the seeds from that apple tree up onto the International Space Station. So we've had from the International Space Station to carvings, graffiti of one of the greatest physicists in the world in our local school, which is pretty cool. I love that. And it's a sense of history that we don't really have in the U.S. So no one's child in the U.S. is going to school somewhere where they would say, oh, in the 1650s, this very famous person (laughs) etched something in stone. That's really just off the chain awesome. One of my favorite places in town is to take people from the United States to is our second oldest building, which is a pub. And it's 400 years old. And people sit in there and think, I am drinking beer in a building that has been a pub for more than 200 years longer than this country was colonized. (laughs) Blows people's minds, but that's cool. I've had that experience in Southeast Asia where I'll be places and they're 2,000 years old. And it just completely blows your mind. You're like, in the U.S., if it's 100 years old, it's old. In other places, if it's not at least 1,000 years old, eh, it's still pretty usable. Yeah, exactly. Which is the nice thing about traveling and experiencing all of that. Well, Rob, I am so grateful that you have joined us to talk about volunteer engagement in the nonprofit sector. And listeners, while Rob is located in the UK, he has so much to offer, regardless of which continent you're on. If you're interested in learning more about volunteer engagement, Rob has several things you should check out. The first is his website, which is at robjacksonconsulting.com. There you'll find a great blog, you'll learn about his consulting, speaking, and mentoring opportunities, and as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, one of his more recent blogs, you can even download his first book as a PDF, Turn Your Organization into a Volunteer Magnet. You also may want to check out evolunteerism.com. It's a global publication for volunteer management that's produced quarterly. It does require a nominal subscription, and I would definitely subscribe if a big part of my life included volunteer management. And then also head over to Amazon and 
check out both of his books, From the Top Down and also The Complete Volunteer Management Handbook. And he's actually co-authored both of the most recent editions of that handbook. Hey, Rob, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Dolph. Thank you for having me on here. It's been a blast. Listeners, were you unable to write down Rob's URL because you're busy on the travel site hip month booking your tickets to Auckland to attend the Pivot Conference and hear Rob speak there? Well, keep looking at those flights to find the least expensive ticket with the fewest layovers, because that can be a really painful flight if you have lots of layovers. And just know that we're going to post all of the links that we just mentioned at our show notes, SuccessfulNonprofits.com. I am grateful that you have chosen to spend this half hour or so with Rob and I, and I invite you to keep the conversation by going and connecting with me on LinkedIn. And if you want to connect with me more individually, you can always do that from SuccessfulNonprofits.com. I personally respond to every listener that reaches out. It might take me a few days, but I always respond. And finally, please make sure you rate, review, and share this podcast with your colleagues and your board members. That is our show for this week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. I am not an accountant or attorney, and neither I nor the Goldberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This material has been provided for informational purposes only, is not intended to provide, and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. Always consult a qualified, licensed professional about such matters.